Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. Well, you know, you brought up one of the most important points, which is the signs and symptoms. And the answer is that's the problem. You don't typically have overt symptoms until you're beginning to have your cognitive decline. So in other words, you don't typically have a peripheral neuropathy um, your hair doesn't fall out. Uh, you don't have, you know, major liver damage. So what's happening is you are dealing with these toxins and, you know, taking you know, just a really quick note on here's, you know, a typical day for us. You know, we get up, we've got these amalgams that are already in our mouth. So we've already got the mercury. It's already leaking 24 seven into our system. Uh, and now, you know, we take a vitamin that happens to have a lot of copper in it. We've got too low zinc too much copper. So already, again, we're being exposed to more dimensions. We go have a nice uh, fish meal. We get an, oh, tuna. Who doesn't love tuna, right? Tuna has lots of mercury in it. We're getting exposed now to both the inorganic mercury from our amalgams and the organic mercury from our fish. You know, then we're putting on some various uh, beauty aids that turn out to be uh, laced with uh, organic uh, dementogens, unfortunately, many of them. So you great to actually have a, an app called Think Dirty that tells you a little bit about what's in some of these things. Uh, and then, you know, we end up, we may burn some candles. Okay, let's have a nice candle. Uh, and that's you know, spewing out toluene and benzene and things like this. Um, we, you know, go outside, we, we then maybe eat some fruit that's, you know, filled with some uh, glyphosate uh, contributing as well. Uh, you know, and then we're, we go back into someone, you know, we go visit a friend, we go into their home, they happen to have unknown mold in their home, which is now pr producing trichothecenes and producing okra toxin A, producing gliotoxin, which is now knocking down your immune system, allowing you to now grow these molds um, in your sinuses uh, and in your gut. Um, so you, we, as you said, it's a we of us, you know, we are marinating in this stuff. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hey, Bettys. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, Stephanie Estima. And today I have a real treat for you. We have Dr. Dale Bredesen back for round two on the pod. And we are discussing his newly released book, The End of Alzheimer's Program. Now, you may remember from the first time that he was on the podcast that we did a really deep dive into the classification of Alzheimer's, so the different subtypes, because you can, it is not just a linear disease, it can be multifactorial. 
We talked about genetics, we talked about APOE4, and we talked about all of these different considerations. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend going back and, and listening to it. I believe, if memory serves me correctly, it is episode 41. And in this episode, we go even deeper. So we talk, we do a brief review of the Alzheimer's classifications just for brevity, but then we get into dementogens. So in the same way that an adaptogen is going to be something that's going to help you adapt, dementogens, unfortunately, are going to do the opposite. They are going to promote dementia. So we talked about three main groups of dementogens. We talked about metals and inorganic chemicals. We talked about organic chemicals and we talked about biotoxins. So in the metals category, we talked about inorganic and organic mercury. We talked about in the organics chemical uh, section, we talked about glyphosate, which is the main uh, ingredient in Roundup. We talked about toluene and benzene that come from burning paraffin candles. We talked about biotoxins like mold. And the other special breakout that I thought was very interesting from the book was Dr. Bredesen's special uh, type of dementogen, which is anesthetic agents. So we talked about going under general anesthesia and how that can really begin if there is a tripwire, can have a tripwire effect in promoting cognitive dementia. So we talk about all of those things and we move into solutions, right? So we talk about the microbiome, both in the gut, as we typically think about the microbiome, but we also talk about the oral microbiome, which I was really happy to discuss with him because, and it's its own chapter in the book, because what we're really beginning to see is that the mouth and the health of our teeth really do affect the entire body and brain, right? And of course, we had a you know discussion around mercury amalgams and all of the things that we can be doing to help with our oral health. We talked about periodontitis, also known as leaky gums. And then we talked about his brain food pyramid. So normally when we look at food guides, like national food guides, we see at the base, there's like the grains and the rice and the breads. His base totally flips it on his head. Base is fasting. And then we go uh, over each of the levels of his brain food pyramid uh, in terms of uh, green leafy vegetables and eating healthy fats. And then uh, you know the different types of fats, whether it's animal fat, saturated fats, polyunsaturates, monounsaturated fatty acids. We talk about all of those things we have a brief discussion, of course, with genetics. You can't talk about Alzheimer's and not talk about apoprotein uh, four, uh, apoprotein uh, number four. And then the um, we talk about, we have a little discussion around cholesterol, and then we move on to supplementation. And one of the things I really appreciate about Dr. Bredesen is it's so lovely to see a neurologist recommending supplementation. There are many medical doctors who really do shrug them off as pointless, not quantifiable, not science-backed. But what we know more and more is that supplementation is an important part of living a healthy life. So we talk about some of those things. And his book, The End of Alzheimer's Program, is being released this week. I highly recommend that you pick up a copy. I was lucky enough to have 
an advanced copy of it, read through it, highlighted it. I have like 40 pages of notes in my Google Docs, and I will include some of those in the show notes for you today. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Dale Bredesen. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. This is our apres ski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea Chocolate Medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. Dr. Dale Bredesen, round two. I'm thrilled to welcome you back to the Better Podcast. Great to be here, Dr. Stephanie. Thank you. Yeah. And like I was just saying to you, I read the book. This There's so much good stuff in your new book, The End of Alzheimer's Program. And for the listener, um, we are going to... As For the listener, if you haven't listened to our original conversation, we went into the cognoscopy and amnestic versus non-amnestic and mild cognitive impairment, subjective, co- we, did, we did all of that in round one. So I'd highly recommend you go back and listen to that. But we are going to talk about your new book, so much gems, so much easy to implement stuff for anybody, anywhere. 
And before we dive into all the details, I thought it might be useful if someone hasn't listened to our conversation before to talk about some of the different classifications of Alzheimer's because we know that it is not just one infection or not just one thing. It's multifactorial and it can come from a variety of different places. And I think that the book, the way that you have structured things, I mean, there's updated and revised, you know, you talk about glycotoxic, you talk about the, the um, vascular and the traumatic classification. So let's go through all the six different classifications in the book, and then we can dive into some of the juicy, the juicy stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. And so, you know, we're coming at this very differently than everybody else. We spent 30 years in the test tubes looking at what are the molecular drivers of this process. Why is it that this is such a common thing that we get Alzheimer's? About 45 million of the currently living Americans will die of Alzheimer's. It's it's unbelievable. It's so so common and, uh, you know, obviously very damaging to your neuroplasticity. And why is that? And what we found is that at the heart of this, as we talked about before, there is a molecular switch. The amyloid precursor protein is sitting in these cells, and it is driven toward either dismantling things, pulling back, um, or it is driven toward, uh, toward support. And, you know, there are direct analogies to what has happened with COVID-19. So in COVID-19, we have a country, all the countries doing what they're doing. What happens? You have an insult. Now there's a new virus. And so, of course, the countries respond by pulling back, by saying, okay, we've got a shelter in place. We've got a social distance. So that's protective against the virus. But on the other hand, it is now downsizing your country's finances. We're now entering a recession. It's downsizing your interactions, the things that you can do. Fortunately, the internet allows us to do a fair number of things. But look at how many businesses are are actually having to shut down, how many people are not getting paid. This is directly analogous to what happens in Alzheimer's. You are making the amyloid which on the one hand is protecting you, just like social distancing, just like sheltering in place. On the other hand, it is reducing your global neural network, just as we have seen with the virus. So the response, this is a response to insults. And so as you mentioned, then when we begin to look, okay, for each person, we want to know what are those insults? What happens? And we find that there are six different groups. So Anyone who has ongoing systemic inflammation, and that can be from microorganisms, it can be from poor dentition, where these these organisms like P. gingivalis and T. denticola, F. nucleatum, can actually get into your brain. Your brain responds by making amyloid. Herpes simplex from your lip gets into your brain. Your brain responds by making amyloid. But again, it is now downsizing, same idea. So that's type 1 or hot Alzheimer's disease. Type 2 is the opposite. It's atrophic. You you don't necessarily have inflammation, but you simply can't support that size neural network. It would be as if you went into a recession. You simply don't have the means to support this. And that is you may not have enough vitamin D, estradiol, testosterone, pregnenolone, progesterone, thyroid hormone, on and on and on. You simply cannot support that neural network. That's type 2 or atrophic or cold. And then there's a type 1.5 because it has some of both, and that is glycotoxic. People who have high levels of sugar, and unfortunately, so many of us, there are about 
80 million Americans who have metabolic syndrome, major problem, major increased risk for Alzheimer's disease. So what's happened is you're now fighting this, you're putting out the insulin that's trying to drive the glucose into the cells and help your metabolism. But unfortunately, over the years with this high insulin, you become insulin resistant. You literally have chemical changes in the phosphorylation patterns of your signaling of your insulin receptor through IRS1, which is one of the downstream signaling molecules. So guess what? Your brain is not supported by insulin the way it is normally. When we used to grow brain cells in a dish or in the lab, you would always have to put insulin in there to keep them alive. So it is an important trophic support factor for your brain. So that's type 1.5. It's got both. You don't have as much support. And you also, of course, have inflammation. Because what does the glucose do? It sticks onto proteins like remoras on a shark. And it changes their shape and it changes their function. And so when you change the shape, your immune system says, aha, here's something new. Let's develop inflammation and attack it. So you get the worst of both worlds, the worst of inflammation, the worst of atrophic decrease in in, uh, response signaling. Then type three is toxic. And there are three groups of toxins we have to be really careful about. So these can all contribute to cognitive decline. So the first one, metals like mercury and then other inorganics. So metals and inorganics are group one or inorganics, things like exposure to air pollution. As you know, there's been a tremendous amount of work now on air pollution as a an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, unfortunately. Then second group is organics, things like benzene and toluene. So if you're living with paraffin candles burning 24-7, you are increasing your risk. Um, if you're living around uh, various other organic toxins, formaldehyde, glyphosate, things like that, you are increasing your risk. And then the third group is the biotoxins. Those are the ones that come from the organisms like molds. And so if you're living with molds, especially certain molds, the the big ones are are stachybotrys, penicillium, uh, aspergillus, ketomium, uh, and wallemia. Those are the big five. And they, unfortunately, you know, they're trying to survive themselves. So what do they do? They make things that kill bacteria. Of course, that's how we get penicillin. Uh, and they're trying to survive because the bacteria grow faster, the molds grow more slowly. So they're trying to kill the bacteria near them. And unfortunately, the products they make for their survival can be very damaging to human brains. They can increase risk for cancer. They can increase damage to our immune system, and they can damage our kidneys and livers as well. So these can be very damaging for us, unfortunately. And most of us don't know when we're exposed to these mycotoxins. So good thing to find out. You're going to need to detox if you're going to get better from your cognitive decline, if that's one of the contributors. So that's type 3 or toxic. Type 4 is vascular. If you are not supporting your brain with enough oxygen, with enough blood flow, you have increased risk. And it used to be thought, of course, that Alzheimer's and vascular dementia were completely separate. Now it's clear that there's an intimate relationship between vascular changes, including leakiness of the blood-brain barrier and Alzheimer's disease. And then type 5, which is uh, traumatic. So if you have trauma to your head, you are at increased risk for Alzheimer's disease, unfortunately. So all of these things uh, are are contributors. And therefore, when someone has cognitive decline, the old method of just saying, well, we don't know what caused it, we're going to check your serum, sodium, and potassium and tell you we don't know what it is, 
that's really out of, that, that's out of date now. You need to know, and if you can find out what these things are, um, and that's why we do the cognoscopy that we talked about in there, we want to look to see, then in fact, you can attack those things. And that's when you get the best outcomes. And what I think is so profound about your work is that when we think about Alzheimer's, we used to think about it as this sort of linear, well, now, you know, you're diagnosed with it late in life and it's sort of looked at as a simple, like your brain is deteriorating. We don't know why it's an idiopathic, you know, etiology or IDK, which we used to joke in, in school stand stood yeah. for, I don't know. Right. right, right. And, um, I like in the book how you distinguish between a simple disease like a pneumococcus or a staph infection or something versus Alzheimer's, which is multifactorial, multilineal, uh, takes, there's this additive cumulative effect that happens over time. Um, can you maybe describe how, in your opinion, Alzheimer's is different from, let's say, a pneumococcus infection? Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, um, this is one of the major problems. One of the major things that's killing so many of us now is that doctors have not, we've not been taught in medical school, we haven't distinguished between the diseases that were killing us in the 20th century, which were mostly simple diseases, things like, as you said, pneumococcal pneumonia, tuberculosis, diphtheria, polio, all these sorts of things. These are simple diseases. You have, yes, you have things, that, and I made the example in the book, uh, of pneumococcal pneumonia, where yes, it's important what your glucose is. It's important if you've got uh, poor B cell function, poor antibodies. But more important than anything else, by orders of magnitude, is the pneumococcus itself. So we've gotten away with over the years as doctors just targeting that one thing. Now, it's completely different when you look at Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's takes years to develop instead of a few hours. And instead of having one thing that's more important than anything else, people, there are many different things that each contribute. So whether in fact you have insulin resistance, whether you have ongoing uh, toxic exposures, whether you have specific oral bacteria that happen to have gotten into your brain, whether you have the inability to clean up your abate, I mean, on and on and on, whether your hormones are low, whether your nutrients are low, whether your trophic factors are too low, all of these things will collude to give you this disease. And therefore, when we try to target it with a drug, we say, well, what's the target? Well, in fact, there are many targets. And therefore, you'd have to have a drug that would do dozens and dozens and dozens of different things. So I actually think in the long run, the drugs are going to be very helpful, but they have to do, they, they have to be given in addition to a background program that is actually targeting the things that are causing. Then you'll really be able to see. So this is why we tell the patients that imagine you have a roof with 36 holes, the drug is a wonderful patch for one hole, but right. it doesn't do anything for the other 35. So you really have to get those. Then you can see that, in fact, yeah, that last hole, really important to patch. And the other thing we're going to see, of course, is going to be new drug targets as we understand more about what's actually driving the process. Things like uh, you know, antifungals are going to be important uh, when you've got those exposures things that get after specific uh, proteases and other products of some of the bacteria and things like that, things that support your insulin sensitivity. All of these things are going to be uh, important targets for cognitive decline. That's wonderful. Wonderfully said. And I wanted to, you mentioned this when we were talking about the type three, the toxic. I wanted to jump to almost the end of the book, which I thought was fascinating. You talk about 
uh, there was a conversation, an in-depth conversation around dementogens. And right. you, you describe it as this Alzheimer's, you know, boulebase, this like toxic right. chemical soup that we're all just marinating in. Um, and you said, you know, we can get the AIMS test. Like we can go and get a carcinogen, a test for carcinogens, yeah. but we don't actually have uh, a dementogen test yet. And you mentioned the three different types of groups, the metallics or the inorganic uh, chemicals, the organics and the biotoxins. And I wanted to maybe just unpack a little bit of those because it, it feeds into uh, a conversation around oral health uh, and some, some other uh, lifestyle factors that you talk about in the book. So let, let's, talk with, let's start with metals. Let's, talk, let's start with mercury. You mentioned that already. Um, how do we know well, let, let's talk about some of the sources. Maybe mercury is one of them, if there's other ones. And how do we know if they're accumulating in the body in an unhealthy way? Like what would be some of the signs, symptoms, tests that we can potentially do? Well, you know, you brought up one of the most important points, which is the signs and symptoms. And the answer is that's the problem. You don't typically have overt symptoms until you're beginning to have your cognitive decline. So in other words, you don't typically have a peripheral neuropathy. Um, your hair doesn't fall out. Uh, you don't have, you know, major liver damage. So what's happening is you are dealing with these toxins and, you know, taking you know, just a really quick note on here's, you know, a typical day for us. You know, we get up, we've got these amalgams that are already in our mouth. So we've already got the mercury. It's already leaking 24-7 into our system. Uh, and now, you know, we take a vitamin that happens to have a lot of copper in it. We've got too low zinc, too much copper. So already, again, we're being exposed to more dimensions. We go have a nice a fish meal, we get an, oh, tuna. Who doesn't love tuna, right? Tuna has lots of mercury in it. We're getting exposed now to both the inorganic mercury from our amalgams and the organic mercury from our fish. You know, then we're putting on some various uh, beauty aids that turn out to be uh, laced with uh, organic uh, dementogens, unfortunately, many of them. So you be great to actually have a, an app called Think Dirty that tells you a little bit about what's in some of these things. Uh, and then, you know, we end up we may burn some candles. Okay, let's have a nice candle. Uh, and that's you know, spewing out toluene and benzene and things like this. Um, we you know, go outside. We, we then maybe eat some fruit that's you know, filled with some uh, glyphosate uh, contributing as well. Uh, you know, and then we're, we go back into someone. You know, we go visit a friend. We go into their home. They happen to have unknown mold in their home, which is now pr producing trichothecenes and producing ochratoxin A, producing gliotoxin, which is now knocking down your immune system, allowing you to now grow these molds um, in your sinuses uh, and in your gut. Um, so you, as you said, it's a we of us. You know, we are marinating in this stuff. And so what's happening is, unbeknownst to us, we are working 24-7. Our glutathione is start trying to move this stuff out. Now, one of the, the big things that helps is a high-fiber diet, and most of us are not getting much fiber. So unfortunately, we're not moving this stuff out the way it should. We are reabsorbing it with our enterohepatic circulation, just distributing. So we're trying to sequester it. Okay, so now we're saying, okay, let's put it in our bones and put it in other organs. Okay, you put it in your bones. Now, as you start to get into your 40s, as you know, in the late 40s, as you know, you now start to have more of that osteoclastic. You're now, the bones are not building up. There's just the beginnings where they're now pulling out. So now these toxins are pulled out. The ones that have been sequestered for 20, 30 years are coming back out again. And so what do we see? We see so many people in their late 40s and early 50s who are now presenting with toxic Alzheimer's disease due to these dementogens because you've got 
all these different ones. And we are low in our, in our detox. Many of us uh, have uh, mutations in detox genes. And again, we're unaware of it until we have problems. So this is why dealing with these toxins earlier, when you're in your 30s, 40s, great idea. Because as you indicated, you know, we've always thought of Alzheimer's as a disease of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But it's really a disease of the 40s, 50s, and 60s that just gets diagnosed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. When you get a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, you are typically talking about 20 years of underlying pathophysiology that has culminated in Alzheimer's disease. So for the future, to reduce the global burden of dementia, we all want to check much earlier. Find out if you're on that fast train to Alzheimerville, unfortunately, and get off it. Make sure that you can deal with the things that are actually causing the problem. And as you indicated, dementogens are one of the biggest concerns. They are one of the major problems when it comes to risk for Alzheimer's. And when, you know, when I was training back in the 80s, way back when, we never saw people who were in their 40s and 50s coming in with Alzheimer's, unless that, that rare mutation in APP, for example. These are you know, less than 1% of the cases. But for the sporadic, which represents 95% of cases, 95 plus, these people we just never saw. They would come in in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s. And now we see it all the time. We see people coming in in their 40s and 50s who said, wait, wait a minute, this is Alzheimer's? You're telling me I have Alzheimer's? I'm only 49 years old or 51 or 52. And it's one of the most common things. And they invariably turn out to have very significant exposure to these toxins. You know, there's a lake uh, nearby where we live and we'll often take the kids there, you know, in the summertime and what have you. And I think the equivalent of like two mercury fillings in that lake would deem it like you wouldn't be able to swim in it. And, yeah. you know, for years, you know, we would put these mercury fillings like centimeters from, from our, like, I don't know where the thinking is, what the studies look like, where, how we got there, but, you know, people have multiple, um, uh, mercury fillings that are centimeters from the brain. And yeah. I was in, in preparation for our interview, I was looking up a couple of studies around why they shifted away from it. So if you are someone who has amalgam fillings, I like consider that the dental amalgams, the amount of mercury that they are leaking is up to a hundred times more than what the suggested minimal risk is. Like it's not insignificant. Um, so yeah, I, I really appreciate um, you saying that. And just to kind of follow on in terms of why you know, a, a, a chemical like mercury is so toxic. You said it's like stored in our bones, then we start leaking it as our osteoclastic activity upregulates as we age. And in terms of the brain too, you mentioned this in the book, like the amyloid uh, plaque and, the, and its parent, the amyloid uh, precursor protein are right. specialized to bind those metals. And last time we were talking, you described... Um, the placking as almost like napalm. Like you said, you know, we put down the napalm to sort of, you know, fix the, or to defend from foreign attack. And the more mercury you have, the more your brain is literally going to shrink. Like your brain is going to get smaller, which is, you know, we want, if there's one organ we want in the body that's thick and fat and, you know, it's, it's the brain, right? We want a juicy, thick brain as we, as we age. So. Absolutely. And we're, of course, we're finding, you know, so many things that will affect that. And, and another good one is high stress. Just yeah. if you want to make your brain shrink, give it cortisol. The other thing you can give it to shrink your brain is sugar. Sugar shrinks the brain rather nicely. 
So uh, unfortunately, you know, we're finding these different things. And as I mentioned in the book, you know, we've all heard about carcinogens and Professor Bruce Ames, who's right here in the Bay Area, did such a great job with giving the world the Ames test for carcinogens. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, we don't have a good test for dementogens right now. And so we need to look at that collective experience and to tell people, hey, these are the things that you're doing every day and these are the things you're exposed to. And as you indicated, you know, mercury, we, we just didn't know. It was, it was a good way to go when, at the time. There are a lot of things we just didn't know at the time. Um, some of the foods we ate, obviously, some of the places we lived, the radiation exposure that we didn't realize was such a problem. Okay, as we're learning these things, we need now to root them out one at a time and make it so that we will have better futures. You call out one specific dementogen that I thought was worth highlighting, it, which was anesthetic agents. Yes. Um, so what and how does going under anesthesia, how does that affect the brain and why? So unfortunately, going under anesthesia, general anesthesia, is almost designed as the perfect thing to give you dementia. And so, so many times we hear the story, well, my mother or my wife or my husband uh, was doing okay until he or she uh, had general anesthesia, had an operation that lasted two hours, never really recovered completely and just started going downhill after that. So when you go under general anesthesia, number one, you are given a toxic burden. You've given these anesthetic agents. You've now got to get rid of them. It now puts further pressure on your detoxification system, which may already be at its limit from things that you're not aware of. The second thing, you're now often not given quite enough oxygen. You often have a mild degree of hypoxia during your anesthesia. Third thing, the anesthesiologists allow your blood pressure to fall. Sounds good. We all want low blood pressure, right? Well, the problem is you're used to a specific blood pressure. So now you're under perfusing. And so actually an anesthesiologist had told me, you know, I really believe in keeping the pressure where it was, where it should be for this person. It's going to be different for each person. But this idea of, yeah, just let it fall is actually not good for your brain. And so now you've got a horrible triad here. You've got not enough oxygen, not enough blood flow, and a big burst of uh, of a chemical that you've now got to get rid of. Add to that, what else do you have with anesthesia? You're under tremendous amount of stress because you've now, you're going to get surgery. You're now also trying to heal up. So again, tremendous amount of stress. So it's hard to design a better dementogenic cocktail than what you have when you undergo general anesthesia. And this is why, you know, if you've got to do it, okay, prepare yourself ahead of time. Do as much detox as possible ahead of time. Make sure that your glutathione is up to snuff, is, is in an optimal range, which so many of ours not. Make sure your vitamin C is at an optimal range. Make sure that you're okay with methylation. You know, check your homocysteine. Do you have enough B12 and folate? Do you happen to have a SNP uh, in uh, MTHFR, for example, or other genes involved in uh, in methylation and detox. These things are all critical. Again, th the problem with dementia is it sneaks up on us. We don't realize all these things until we're actually going downhill. And so we say, hey, you know, things aren't quite what they used to be, but hey, I'm getting a little older. It's kind of typical. Well, not, not always. There are a lot of people who, you know, into their 80s, 90s can do very, very well. And it's, it's, you know, it's not a surprise. It's the ones that actually keep their neurochemistry optimal. 
So talk to your surgeon and talk to your anesthesiologist. Talk to your surgeon and ask, is it possible to do this under a more local uh, or spinal? Uh, although to be fair, you know, there's some uh, literature showing that spinal anesthesia is also, because again, you're giving a toxic burden, but you're not doing as much as you do um, with general anesthesia. Uh, and so ask about that first of all. And then secondly, talk to your anesthesiologist and make sure that they use agents that you can remove rapidly and make sure that they don't allow your blood pressure to drop too low. And you tell them, you know, you want to continue to perfuse your brain to the extent possible during the procedure. And then see if it's something that you can not do with, you know, many hours, but try to limit the amount of time. These will all be helpful to you. And then, of course, we have a piece in the book about, you know, here's the very, here's the cocktail to take immediately after the operation so that you can detox as quickly as possible and minimize your risk for dementia. Yeah, that's just so great. And one of the things I really appreciated about the book was that you've sprinkled all these upgrades all through the book, like little, easy, actionable things. And, you know, if there's one thing we know about humans, if you, you know, anyone, if there's clinicians that are listening, I know we have a lot of clinicians that listen to this podcast, you know, it's hard to make changes with behavior with, with humans. Like we really resist it, but you've made these little easy, like switch out the paraffin candle for the beeswax one or stop the plastic Tupperware, put the, you know, just get some glass ones. And if you could, you know, when we think about dementogens, you know, uh, you talk about reducing your exposure, optimizing detoxification, as we've been discussing. Yeah. And then at, at the end of that, if there's still a need, then we treat the toxin, you know, directly. If, if there were some, if you had some favorites, if, you know, I know that, you know, we technically can't have favorites, but if there were, you know, favorites uh, in terms of the actionable items that we can do every day to reduce our exposure to these dementogens and to, to upregulate our detoxification, what are some of the, maybe the things that you do in your life or that you recommend to, uh, to people in the book? Yeah. So, uh, so let me preface that by saying I, I'm enthusiastic about this book because the first book was really conceptual. The first book was about, here's what our research showed us over 30 years. Here's what you, you, know, you can, that the research suggests you can actually impact Alzheimer's in a way that no one had ever done before, because it shows you what the molecules that drive the process are. And lo and behold, when we do that for people, we see unprecedented improvements. So it actually bears out the results of the research. So very excited about that. But many people said, hey, but we want details. You know, where are the URLs? What do we buy? What are the workarounds? What are the things we can do each day? What do we eat? Um, why is one kind of exercise better than another? How do we track our own sleep? All these things. So the second book is about details. And, you know, as a scientist, I don't have enough of the details because I'm, you know, if you're a mouse, I can probably help you. Um, but looking, <laughs> looking at uh, all the things that are done, the best thing to do was to work with someone who's doing it every day and getting great results. And so I actually linked up for the second book with two people. One is Julie, who's the person who started ApoE4.info. She herself has two copies of ApoE4, so she's at a very, very high risk. She actually did develop cognitive decline years ago, um, went on the protocol, and at the time it was just being developed, so she did some of this on her own, but then has continued to tweak with the protocol that we developed. She's now eight years into this, and that's the most exciting part, that people who get better stay better. 
And so she has gone through all these things, what worked for her, what didn't work, what, you know, what products to buy, what products not to buy, what things to stay away from, all these things. And so she wrote this handbook with me along with my wife, who is a clinician and integrative physician. And so the three of us bring completely different skill sets and completely different backgrounds. And so that's why I was really enthusiastic about this handbook part of the new book, which is the major part of the new book uh, and going through all these things. So you, br- you bring up, you know, so what can we all do to minimize our dementogens? And, you know, it's really interesting to me. People used to talk 100 years ago about going to spas. And about, you know, just kind of getting away, getting out to the countryside, getting away from things for several days, a long weekend or even a week or two. And I'm realizing why that was such a good idea back then, and even though it kind of fell out of favor. So there are so many things because ultimately it's about the balance. We have a certain amount of toxicity coming in every time we inhale the, you know, the, the air pollution that we may be near where we're living. Every time we get in a car. We're exposed to these incompletely combusted products. And in fact, we do have people who have cognitive uh, decline related to acrolein, which is one of the things you get from car exhaust. And so you've got the the air pollution. You've got, as I mentioned, many people living or working in buildings that happen to have water damage. So again, just like COVID-19, you've got much better chance if you're out of the house, if you're you're out there when you're in these close confined quarters with other people that's when you're at the greatest risk for getting COVID-19 same story with Alzheimer's get outdoors where it's dissipative the viral load much much lower and in fact when Wuhan when they tracked back and said okay where did these people get their COVID-19 they found that in nearly every case it was from indoor interactions rather than outdoor interactions so you know, get out there. And the same thing is true for Alzheimer's. Inside is where the mycotoxins are. It's where the sedentary lifestyle is. It's where many of the dementogens are. It's, it's really a bad place to be. Outdoors, you know, cleaner in general. You know, you, and you, it's where the vitamin D is, which is going to... Sunshine. That's where the sunshine is. <laughs> sunshine, absolutely. Yeah. So, so some basic things. Um, and I've tried to you know, implement a number of these uh, on myself, just realizing, oh my gosh, you know, I'm really shocked to see how important toxicity is. So you indicated earlier, you know, if you've got uh, a dental amalgams, uh, consider having them removed. But if you have them removed, don't have them removed all at once. If you've got a lot of them, you should take out one or two and then wait a few months and they should be done by a biological dentist, a dentist who is experienced with removing without giving you more exposure. Because unfortunately, you can get an increase in exposure when you remove them. And then, you know, it's interesting to me, again, some of these basics, and we can talk about specifics in a moment, but the basic things, fiber, turns out, you know, people were probably getting about 100 grams of fiber per day, you know, 10,000 years ago with the diets that we had at that time, our ancestral diets. Now, many of us are getting five or 10 grams a day. So try to shoot for 30 grams as a minimum. And I've been, during COVID-19, I've been using chronometer for myself and looking to see where am I deficient. And of course, it's easy to be low. So I've been using psyllium husk, um, you know, eating, and then of course, other things from salads and on and on. But having an additional 
support from fiber turns out to be very helpful to your detox. Try to get up, and you can use things like PGX, Conjac Root, all sorts of things. In addition to the, the usual things like broccoli and things like this, try to get up to at least 30 grams per day to help you with your detox. And then include, of course, with that, filtered water, you know, and try to get up there at, you know, at least two liters a day. Some people like to go up three or four, but at least try to get up to, to two liters or so per day. Again, removal of these. And in fact, there was a study showing just people who uh, drunk, uh, drank more water um, actually uh, ended up having a reduced risk for developing type 2 diabetes. So among many things, it, you know, it is a good detoxer. And then of course, sweating. And sweating can be through sauna, it can be through exercise, um, and then get some you know, non-toxic soap, uh, you know, uh, whichever ones that you happen to like. Like a, that, Castile, um, a Castile soap. Castile is a good example. Yeah, that's the one that I like to use, but lots of people, you know, there are other ones um, to try to get rid of this in the sweat. In fact, some nice studies looking at what comes out in sweat um, and actually the, looking at the sweat concentration versus the blood concentration. Um, and the big one, the biggest of all turned out to be cadmium, where it's a really good way to get rid of this stuff. It's about a thousand times more in your sweat than in your blood. But there are many, many other toxins that are coming out in sweat. So these things are all basic things. And then, of course, sleep turns out to be incredibly important. Um, you are detoxing during sleep. And then, of course, supporting your liver and kidney function turn out to be very helpful. And things like beetroot juice that actually supports blood flow to your kidneys turns out to be very helpful. Um, optimizing your microbiome. One of the common things, glutathione, so many of us don't realize we are low in the glutathione. And you know, eating some of the sulfur-containing vegetables and some of the crucifers and things like that, very helpful. But also, you can take N-acetylcysteine. That's fine, to, to, again, to supplement that. Uh, and then you can also take things like S-acetylglutathione. Glutathione by itself, not absorbed very well, as you know. Um, but uh, some of these uh, liposomal glutathione or S-acetylglutathione will help to increase that level. And many of us are at suboptimal levels of glutathione. Um, and then, you know, again, just trying to get away from this, this onslaught, um, reducing your uh, ongoing cortisol levels, reducing your stress levels. And you know, one of the striking things we saw early on was that the people who developed toxin-related Alzheimer's, type 3 Alzheimer's, virtually, you know, many of them virtually always had some major stressor that seemed to kind of tip them over. And some of them even we've seen where when they have stress levels, in fact, then they have more problems with their cognition. When they lower the stress, in fact, their cognition gets better. So there is this real link, this direct link between toxicity and stress. And you want to be able to, part of that, of course, is this idea of pregnenolone steel. When you're making your steroids, yes, you can use those steroids, the upstream pregnenolone, to make things like the sex steroids, um, or you can use it to make things like the stress steroids, like uh, DHEA and like cortisol. You, you can't really do both. And so you, when you are now under stress, you know, under high stress, you're not making, in fact, one of the more important hormones for detox turns out to be progesterone. So you're not making much progesterone when you're under stress. So these are some of the basic things. And, you know, I like 
some of the, the supplements I, meant, I mentioned, like N-acetylcysteine. Also make sure that your homocysteine is reduced, that you've got enough folate B12 and P5P, which is a, the active form of, of B6. And you can find out easily uh, which forms of B12. People take methylcobalamin, adenosylcobalamin, hydroxocobalamin, and there are other forms as well. If you are a hypermethylator, which is typically if you've got COMT SNPs, uh, and also it depends on your vitamin D receptor SNPs, interestingly, um, then you have to be careful. You don't want to take too much methylcobalamin. You want to be more on the hydroxocobalamin side. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you're not a hypermethylator, and so many of us are hypomethylators, too little methylation, then in fact, you want to be more on the side of taking uh, methyl B12 and adenosyl. Typically, we recommend people 50-50 on those two uh, to get the optimal outcome. So all of these things are helping you um, with your detox. And you know, think about the excretion, and then also, uh, you know, think about your oral health. Because again, any, any of your resources that you're putting toward dealing with problems elsewhere, be them in your mouth, be they, be they in your gut, in your lungs, in your skin, what have you, this is lowering your resources that you can deal with dementogens, unfortunately. So and people often make the analogy that you, it's like having a tub. You can get to a certain amount because, yeah, you're sequestering them in your bones and you're detoxing them and you're trying to move them through and you're now also metabolizing them and you're making specific chemical alterations uh, you know, with your P450 enzymes. You're doing all these things to try to minimize that exposure, but at some point you're overwhelming the system. And that can be because you're continuing to expose it. It can be because your detox system isn't very, very good, or it can be because you've just filled the tub up in past years and now you're getting to the top. So periodically trying to flush that out is a really good idea. And doing things that overall can help you will give you more years of health span. There's so much gold in what you just said. <laughs> I think anyone who's listening, rewind right now, five minutes back and listen to that again because there was so much actionable stuff in there. Thank you. Um, let's, let's talk about KetoFlex 12.3 and the brain food pyramid. So this is, again, getting into some of the more specifics in terms of how we can structure our nutrition, which can, as you've been saying, upregulate our detoxification, upregulate kidney excretion, upregulate our ability to um, to excrete and get rid of toxins. And I love so you know, unlike the you know the Canada Food Guide. I mean, I'm 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 based in Toronto, so we have the Canada Food Guide, which is like five to ten servings of grains. Um, or the U.S. equivalent, which is, I think it's, it used to be the same, right? So they used to have like the grains on the bottom. I love that the base of this pyramid, so you propose this entire new pyramid of eating and the base of which is fasting. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna it's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique 
and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. And we've talked a lot on this podcast about fasting. I am, you know, you and I in some ways are cut from the same cloth. I am obsessed with brain health. And I love that you took a brain-based approach with why fasting is so important and why we actually need to start with fasting. So let's, let's start for the listener, specifically why fasting helps with uh, brain health. And then we can talk about, and if you want, you can integrate why the, how the 12-3 uh, integrates into the, the name of the KetoFlex uh, 12-3. Right. So we thought it was really important to construct a brain food pyramid to let people know, look, we've been told about a food pyramid. And of course, if you go back to the very first food pyramid that was saying, okay, eat things that a lot of stuff that's at the bottom and very little at the top. What was at the bottom? Bread, bread, crackers, that, you know, as you say, grain related things. Uh, and at the top were things like fats, it's like, oh, eat very little of this. Well, okay, we're now looking at what, what's the best way to drive your brain chemistry toward one that is synaptoblastic, making and keeping your synapses that are so critical for your memories and for your performance day in and day out, and minimizing the synaptoclastic activities that are pulling these things apart. As we talked about, you know, you're actively forgetting the seventh song that played on the radio on the way to work yesterday. You're remembering the important things. So if you want to drive it, now that we know much more than we did 30 years ago about how to drive that chemistry, we know that hormones are important. We know that nerve growth factor and brain-derived neurotrophic factor are important. We know that minimizing the NF-kappa-B of, infl of inflammation is important. Well, guess what? As you said, the food is critical. And so we realized when you start looking at how do you drive that, let's make the pyramid that actually helps your brain. In fact, much of it is taking the original pyramid and flipping it upside down. It's, it's surprising, actually. So the brain, you know, the things like bread, oh my gosh, you know, that we know that spikes your, your glucose. And in fact, we encourage anyone who's interested, anyone who wants to know what is, is am I at risk because of my glucose? Please get CGM, continuous glucose monitoring. It's two weeks. It's pretty easy to do. And you can see, and you'll be surprised when you put some bread into your mouth, your glucose will skyrocket. And in fact, when you're waking up in the middle of the night, as many people do, what they find out when they do the CGM is guess what? Your glucose is dropping because you've now spewed out this insulin late in the evening. Now your glucose is 40 or 45 or 50. And your adrenaline is coming on saying, oh my gosh, I'm damaging my brain here. The glucose is going too low. I better jack it up. And you wake up and think, why did I wake up? Why am I having trouble getting back to sleep? And so we're seeing this in person after person. So it's very helpful both for the high spikes and for the valleys. Helpful to know. And so when you actually put that pyramid together and say, okay, here's what's most important for your synapses, then next and next. And here are the things you should really be aware of. At the bottom, as you indicated, really is looking at the fasting. And then you want to have things like the good fats, things like avocado and things like nuts, the polyunsaturates and the monounsaturates. One of the big findings in, on the research side in Alzheimer's is that what's happening to our brains 
includes a critical energy gap. So we are not supporting, we are not making enough energy to support our brain function. As you know, our brain function takes a tremendous amount of energy. These brains that we have, these amazing supercomputers that we have inside our skulls are like Maseratis going screaming down at 220 miles an hour. You're on, you know, you're continually thinking, you continually act, you're making new synapses, you're pulling back, you're making more efficiency, less efficiency. Guess what? As we get older, we start to lower the ability to support that. We don't have the vitamin D, we don't have the blood flow, we don't have the oxygenation, we don't have the mitochondrial function. These, this whole system becomes suboptimal. And what does it do, therefore? It starts to pull back. And of course, it tries to get rid of things that you can do without. Surprisingly, new memories are things that you can actually function pretty well without. But that's the canary in the mind that's telling. When you're having trouble remembering new things, get in there quickly. Please get treated, get up, get checked out and get treated because that's the canary in the mind telling you things are headed. You are literal. Your brain is pulling back. You're not able to hold things in your mind the way you were before. And so getting your good fats up there because of fat metabolizing and getting you into ketosis turns out to be very helpful. So you can actually see this energy gap if you do a PET scan. You have decreased glucose utilization in your temporal regions and in your parietal regions, as I mentioned in the book. And so how do you bridge that gap? Well, Dr. Stephen Kinane from Canada has pointed out that you can do this with ketosis. And so getting those ketones up in the long run, we'd like for people to get them endogenously to produce it. Your liver will produce these ketones. Now, the problem is when your insulin's high, it won't produce the ketones. You got to get that down to produce the ketones. And that's where fasting has been so helpful. Fasting plus exercise plus optimal sleep helps you to become insulin sensitive, helps your liver to produce the needed ketones. But until that time, which may take a month or two, fine, just take some exogenous ketones. This is why people take coconut oil or, or uh, MCT oil. Be careful. Those can increase your uh, triglycerides, can increase, unfortunately, give you a poor lipid profile, can increase your LDL particle number. So please be careful about those. You can also, if, you, if you're concerned about lipids, take exogenous ketones. Uh, there's a, a nice one out, a new interesting one called KE1. Um, which is, I believe, from Ketone Aid. And this one um, is a combination of ketone esters and ketone salts. Uh, but there are other ones. There are other esters you can take. There are other salts that you can take. Whatever you do, make sure that you support your brain, ultimately with endogenous ketosis. So the bottom line is things, vegetables and, and fats and good oils and things like that, hugely important. Now, as you move up, Interestingly, you know, why are fruits not at the bottom? Well, the problem is um, fruits, of course, can be high glycemic load. A really interesting point made uh, the other day um, in a discussion with the paleo group. And their point was, sure, you know, we, if you look at our guts, if you look at our histories, if you look at our teeth, if you look at everything related to food, what are we? Are we made to be carnivores? Are we made to be uh, something else? Are we made to be herbivores? And the answer is none of the above. We actually are constructed like frugivores. So we're actually, that is our metabolism. That is our, um, that is, that's the way our teeth are set. That's the way our guts work. Frugivores, which is essentially what primates are. The problem is 
the fruit that we were meant to eat is fruit that's not so sweet. We have unfortunately put ourselves out of business by making sweeter apples. I remember when I was a little kid, my mom brought home the first, she said, this is a new kind of apple called the delicious apple. And I was like, wow, this is delicious. It's great. I can see why they call it. Yeah, filled with sugar. And of course, the fruit that we eat now is not the fruit that we were evolutionarily designed to eat. That fruit is not such sweet fruit, unfortunately. So we're, we're killing ourselves by all the sweetness. So therefore, we want to keep that down. Have more on the, the berries side and the not so sweet things and make sure that you get plenty of fiber to keep that glycemic Affect that uh, that's that you know that that huge rush uh, with glycemic load uh, you know down lower, and then of course at the very top are things like uh, chocolate. And yeah, great, have some chocolate if you want to have some wine, things like that. Yeah, small amounts of wine, um, you know, a few times a week, no big problem as long as it's not impacting your thinking. Uh, you don't want to have five glasses, you know, you want to have one glass, uh, you know, preferably. Uh, a nice, uh, you know, a nice red like a cab or something like that, because you've got you've got some good polyphenols in there and things like that. So the good news is there are lots of workarounds, and you don't have to close every hole. The 36 holes. The good news if you close enough of them, and the very first patient who did so well closed 12 of them. The other ones will snap shut, just as Dean Ornish found with atherosclerosis 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. You start doing the right things, and you switch from increasing the problem to reducing the problem. And we actually see the same thing with putting down synapses and keeping them. So you start doing many of these right things, you're going in the right direction. And so, yeah, this is why there are workarounds for many, many things. And I think Julie, uh, in, in her contributions to this, has put so many great ideas and so many things that have worked so well for her. She's got a beautiful section in there about uh, about cacao and cocoa and what are the ones that are actually high in cadmium that you really need to avoid these things that can be very damaging and which are the ones that are actually okay um, how to buy it where to buy it how to make sure that it's not going to be a brain problem for you uh, and then same sorts of things for you know ketones and for which fats uh, which fats to use for how to cook these things uh, so that you don't damage yourself, so you don't have too many advanced glycation end products. And it's remarkable, actually, these advanced glycation end products that you get from things like fr- you know, frying foods and things like that, French fries, things like that. These things actually have a receptor, receptor for advanced glycation end products, RAGE. And guess what? That actually interacts with amyloid. So in fact, there is a close link between these advanced glycation end products. In fact, there are even drugs where people were trying to block that interaction to see if that would improve your Alzheimer's disease. And again, as a monotherapy, doesn't do much, but it shows you that this is part of the overall Alzheimer's equation. One of the things that I think, you know, the, when I think about a ketogenic diet. And when I think about the people who tend to recommend them, they tend to be neurologists. Like you are a really big proponent with your Ketoflex 12.3. We have Dr. David Perlmutter and, and many others that are really um, concerned about healthy brain aging. And one of the things that I I run a similar, it's actually a very similar program to the Ketoflex 12.3 uh, it's a ketogenic diet. We tend to work with women, but what I find is 
that I have to undo a lot of programming that pe- there's these preconceived notions that eating fat, even monounsaturates and polyunsaturates, these, this is like somehow, you know, heart attack food, right? And we have, you know, national organizations that are, I think, starting to make the, you know, transition, but still very much recommend low fat stuff. They put heart healthy check marks on cereal boxes, which are full of processed sugars. What, how do you counsel someone to, to look at, at, particularly, I know that the Ketoflex 12.3 is, is MUFAs and PUFAs. It's a lot of the polys and the monounsaturates. How do you begin to help counsel someone that, and propose that this radical idea that fat is actually really good for you and it's actually really good for your brain? Like, what are some of the things that eating fat does for your body physiologically? Yeah, it's a very good point. And again, we just start with, look, we, we're agnostic. Whatever is going to help your cognition, that's what we want to do. And the actual chemistry of it shows you need these ketones to get into your brain. You can simply show a PET scan. Look, your brain is not metabolizing. It doesn't have the energy that it needs to keep up with the thinking that you need to do. We need to boost that up. And the best way to do that is with ketones, and these ketones come from fats ultimately. So yes, you know, let's let's be fair. You know, these very very low fat diets. Yes, if you just remove all fat, you're going to increase your risk for unfortunately for for cognitive loss. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you can. It does have an impact, as people have shown in the past, on heart disease. So the good news is you can get the best of both worlds by following your heart status, get your LDL particle number checked, and get your calcium scan so you can actually see what your calcium score is and make sure that your coronary arteries look good. But follow your lipids, follow your, you know, your LDL particle number, and then make sure that you are perfusing your brain. One of the big problems that goes along with that is that people find that their oxygen drops at night. So again, you need all these things working together to keep you having good cognition. And one of the most common problems, and I mentioned this in the book, is that people don't realize that as we sleep at night, for many people, we are dropping our oxygen saturation. And there was a wonderful study that looked at what happens when your oxygen saturation with all the different levels, the people who are high, you want to be in the 96 to 98% oxygen saturation. What if it's 94, 92, 90, 88, way down? We see people even in the low 70s. Unbelievable. And then they just graph that versus the volume of specific nuclei within the brain. And lo and behold, there was a direct correlation. As your average oxygen saturation goes down, the average size of these brain regions goes down. Really scary. So in fact, this includes critical regions for Alzheimer's disease. So again, in fact, you want to reduce the size of your brain and increase your risk for Alzheimer's, don't bother to check what happens with your oxygenation when you're sleeping at night. But if you're interested in keeping your cognition, please check. It's pretty easy to do. You can get an oximeter. In fact, you can buy an oximeter on Amazon, stick it on your finger and check to see where you stand at night. Like to get you, make sure you're in the 96 to 98% range. And of course, so many people are interested in oxygen saturation because of COVID 19. This is a big issue. And you can actually check your oxygen saturation on your iPhone you know, at any single point in time. But you want to trace for the whole night while you're sleeping. 
So you've either got to have your spouse come in and check it repeatedly or just get an oximeter and have it checked or ask your doctor. Uh, doctors will often loan them out uh, so that you can actually see where you stand. Um, incredibly. So again, all these things, the fats give you the ketones. You need to support those mitochondria. And there are good ways to do this. Things like nicotinamide riboside, uh, increasing your NAD, uh, ubiquinol. These things are crucial for supporting. Remember, you're, you're delivering critical, uh, critical support to your brain all the time. And if you're not getting that flow, you're not getting the oxygen, if you're not supporting the mitochondria, if you're not getting the ketones to burn, you're not giving yourself the best chance for good cognition. And I like what you're saying when we're talking about fats. I mean, I think that a lot of people are very scared of saturated fats. Like that's the, you know, we have, and there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of public confusion around it. We have like cardiologists and vegans that are like, the, you know, animal meat, lots of SA, lots of saturated fat, heart attack food. And then we have, you know, sort of doctors on the other end of the spectrum that are, you know, maybe just doing carnivore and just having all these animal proteins that say the opposite. So I understand that there's a lot of confusion there. Um, and there's a lot of nuance, as you were saying as well, like there's SNPs, like it's your genetic predisposition, how you metabolize fats. When we're talking about Alzheimer's, of course, we want to be considering the APOE4 allele. I I just I I feel like what I would love to see, and I see this a lot. I see this enough when people are coming to keto for the first time that they are so scared of cholesterol. Like we have been told, you need to have your cholesterol a certain number. And you just said something that remind. I loved what you said, where you said like, look at your uh, calcium artery score. Look at your LDL particle number. You know, because when we just look at the total cholesterol. It's meaningless if you don't have context like that. If it's meaningless if you don't know what the HDL to triglyceride ratio is, or your non-HDL, like it's 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 completely meaningless. And I've had, um, we'll call them spirited discussions with yeah. other with other professionals that don't hold that opinion. Um, and when we talk about this with with Alzheimer's, you know, cholesterol is a structural element of the brain. Like you need you need cholesterol and. Um, there's there's many studies. I mean, they're epidemiological, you know, they're observational. But elderly people who have more cholesterol, so maybe their total cholesterol number is like north of 200, maybe it's closer to 300, but they have less, they have lowered levels of cognitive uh, impairment and dementia and and decline uh, in co- in cognition versus those that have lower cholesterol. So I always like, and that's not to say that I want everyone to have high cholesterol. That's not the messaging. The messaging here is that context is really important when it comes to fats. Like I love like the pulse ox, like I think they're like 30 bucks on Amazon. Like you can just yeah. have one all, you know, to monitor your oxygen levels because that's a hypoxic brain. Like you don't have, if you're at 92, that's hypo, that's bordering on hypoxia if, if that, if not already hypoxic. Um, but I also just want people to be less scared of cholesterol. So with, with that preamble and my little rant there, um, what are some of the biomarkers in the lipid realm? So you mentioned a couple of them, uh, LDL particle number. Are there certain levels that you like to sort of stay within or ranges that you like to see? Yes. And, and I mentioned this in the book. But, so yeah, we'd like to see people in the 800 to 1200 LDL particle number. That's a good, if they're sitting up at 2000, that's dangerous. Yeah. Um, if they're down lower than 800, you may not have enough support as, as you mentioned earlier. Um, I worry about people 
Um, not so much as you said, high cholesterol, the cholesterol itself doesn't mean much. I worry about them when it's very low. So people who are sitting down at, you know, 105 because they're on a statin uh, are, are really starving their brain. So I worry about those. You can also get things like oxidized LDL. That's fine. You can look at small dense LDL. That gives you similar, uh, basically similar data to what you get uh, with your uh, LDL particle number. And then another easy one to look at is your triglyceride to HDL ratio, which you'd like to be around 1.9, somewhere in there. As you're drifting up, you get up to 1.4, 1.5, 2, 3. You really are increasing your risk for cardiovascular events and vascular events. And again, vascular events, it's not just about, about myocardial infarctions. It's not just about strokes. It's also about dementia and decreasing that perfusion, huge problem. And again, this comes back to why exercise is such a great support. And we're recommending to a lot of people now, please, if you've got vascular issues, get on EWOT, which is this exercise with oxygen therapy. You're combining two wonderful things. You're driving up your perfusion, and now you're giving oxygen while you're driving up the perfusion. Very, very helpful for many people. And many people are surprised at what this can do for them. It's, you're now supporting something that you haven't been supporting well enough. So those are the typical uh, lipid numbers that we look at. We don't want the total cholesterol to be too low. We don't want the HDL, to, uh, the uh, TG to HDL ratio to be more than about 1, 1.1. 1. 1. Uh, we don't want the LDL particle number to be more than 1,200. Th those are the, the signposts that we look for. And let's, let's talk a little bit about, there's another tier you talk about gut health. And I think that we can maybe parse this with a conversation around oral health. Mm -hmm. I, as a clinician, I can tell you that gut health is like the pink elephant in the room. It's, it's almost like Alzheimer's. It's like complex, mm -hmm. the derangement, the dysbiosis, the hyperpermeability. There's like all roads lead to Rome. In this case, Rome is, you know, gut, poor gut health, right? Mm -hmm. What are, what are some of the common uh, more cumulative reasons why someone would have, uh, you know, derangement in their ability to absorb nutrients or their gut function. Yeah, great point. And, and there are a number of these. And in fact, you know, looking at the microbiome of patients with Alzheimer's disease, it is different than the microbiome of someone without Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, in, in rodent studies, you can actually change the microbiome and see improvements in these. So we're, we're not there as, as uh, Professor Knight has pointed out, we're we're not to the point where there's a lot of actionable advice about microbiomes, but there are some basic things we can all do. Uh, and so things like, if you, so if you look at uh, what happens with your, with your gut microbiome, the first thing, of course, is that people end up with a leaky gut um, just from eating the wrong foods, things that many of us are sensitive to gluten. And of course, uh, Professor Fasano from Harvard has done so much nice work showing what actually happens with gluten and the fact that many of us who don't, uh, ha you know, who, who aren't aware that we have a gluten sensitivity, nonetheless, have a negative impacts from consuming gluten. And so we do leak this, we leak the LPS, we leak the fragments of bacteria, we leak, leak the, the food particles, all these things we're leaking into our bloodstream. And that is contributing to systemic inflammation. As he's pointed out, when you have a leaky gut, when that barrier is down, you also tend to have your blood-brain barrier 
as leaky, that tends to be down. And that's been shown to be an early accompaniment of cognitive decline. So unfortunately, that is a big player and an early player in cognitive decline. So that whole area is huge. And then, you know, we talked a little bit in the book about resistant starches. Um, supporting your gut microbiome. Uh, another big one, of course, is you want to support it because if you've just been on antibiotics, and again, when we're given antibiotics, the doctor never says to you, okay, take this course of antibiotics, and then, by the way, remember that you've just damaged your gut microbiome. So then here's how you're going to get it back to where it should be. So unfortunately, we end with that. And many people will say, you know, my problems of X, my problems of arthritis, my problems of fatigue, my problems of brain fog. I can date back to when I had that two-week course of antibiotics four or five years ago. So you are making big impacts on your gut microbiome. So that's another big change. Um, supporting, I mentioned earlier, I like to take uh, psyllium hospice. People take konjac root, all these sorts of things that support this. You mentioned again, let's not forget the oral microbiome, so huge. And so now there's now a simple and nice test you can do, which is called oral DNA. And you'll get a nice report for whether you have the pathogens that are associated with cardiovascular disease and brain disease. Things like P. gingivalis, as I mentioned earlier, T. denticola, F. nucleatum, Prevotella intermedia, things like that. If you're doing well with your oral health, you should be very low on those pathogens. And in fact, there's something you can do about it. Um, there's nice uh, dental side and toothpaste and dental side and mouthwash that can help you reduce the pathogens. And again, we're, when, we were in, when I was in medical school way back when, it was about getting rid of organisms. Now it's really about getting the right balance of organisms. You're going to have organisms in your mouth. And you want to have the right organisms in your mouth. And you want to minimize those pathogens. And you can do that by changing that ratio. And there are things, in addition to dental side and things like that, things like oil pulling that people do um, that can actually be supportive as well. And again, any one of these things by itself doesn't have a huge impact. But again, what you're doing, you're tuning the violins in the orchestra. You're now making it so that the orchestra is starting to sound better and better you're going to have a longer health span, you're going to have a better life, you're gonna have more energy, you're gonna have fewer autoimmune conditions, you know, on and on and on. And this is the difference between 20th century medicine, where we made a diagnosis, oh, it's arthritis. We don't know what causes it, give aspirin, or give ibuprofen, or give steroids. And 21st century medicine, which is about why it is, instead of what it is, to look at all the different pieces, get larger data sets. It's amazing to me that there are huge data sets that are going to Google telling them what you're shopping for, what do you do, how they can sell you things better. But we're not using the same sort of sophisticated approaches to keep us from having Alzheimer's disease. It's incredible. It's all about shopping and not about Alzheimer's disease. So this is where things are headed, uh, much better data sets so that we can actually prevent and reverse cognitive decline, which we're now seeing like never before. I love that you had a chapter on the oral microbiome. And I have to also just shout out like the titles of your book, the chapters are hilarious. Like the two, like the oral uh, chapter was called the tooth, nothing but the tooth. And you know, it's so funny, but I love that you, you mentioned oil pulling because very similar in the way that when we take MCTs, when we take 
uh, coconut oil. It is antibacterial, antifungal, puts us in a state of ketosis. It does the same thing for our teeth. And I, I just finished um, earlier this week, I was interviewing um, Nadine Artemis. She's, um, she owns an essential oil company and she wrote a book on uh, oral care. Yeah. And she loves to brush her teeth with baking soda. And she was talking very similar to you about like swishing, you know, swishing oil. And she calls it leaky gums, which I thought was so clever in the same way that we talk about a leaky brain, like the leaky blood brain barrier, the leaky gut. You know, she talks about like the gums being this permeable, like they get that P. gingivalis. You know, we see it elsewhere in the body, right? And you, you talked about that as well in, um, in the book where we're seeing P. gingivalis. Um, elsewhere other than in the mouth. So I think that everything is connected. The oral microbiome, we really are starting to pay attention. I've just started brushing my teeth with baking soda and I can, I have never felt cleaner. Like it's just, it's a vain thing, but it feels amazing. Um, and I also do the, the oil pulling as well. So interesting. You should mention this. You know, you probably saw a paper just came out this week showing that some of the oral microbiomes, again, some of these pathogens not only can get into the brain, they not only can affect your cardiovascular disease, but interestingly now they've found that one of them travels throughout the body and actually supports metastasis and, and growth of colorectal cancer. So it's just shocking what's coming from these things. This is really about, not just about oral health, but about whole body health. And of course there are now groups um, they call themselves, you know, oral systemic specialists. And I think that's a great point because we always thought, you know, the gut was down here, the mouth is here, the brain is here. Guess what? They're all connected. These things are communicating. They're traveling around your body. They're having impacts. They're having impacts on your colon cancer, as we've just been shown, on your cardiovascular disease, on your cognition. These are all connected. It's really remarkable what's coming out of the research. Let's talk supplementation uh, for a few minutes as we're, you know, beginning to wrap this up. I, I have to make this point. It's so lovely to see uh, a medical doctor, a neurologist such as yourself, recommending supplements. So often, uh, they are just sort of poo-pooed, you know, as like. And of course, not all supplements it can be the wild, wild west. I get that. That there's a yeah. not a lot. There's not a lot of. Um, uh, uh, regulation. So you can say something and you know the pill, the capsule can have something else, but it's so lovely to have you. And in the book, you go into incredible detail in terms of dosage and which ones and why. But if we could just, a, a first timer wants to start leveling up their brain health, they're going to do the KetoFlex 12 program. The, they're going to follow the brain food pyramid. They're going to reduce the dimensions. The baseline supplement protocol that you would recommend, what would it be and maybe you know some minimum dosage uh, if 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 that's available. Yeah, and and first of all, you know from from the discussions we've had before and the and the uh, in the book, there is no base. There's nothing that's for everybody. So you know there, there are some there are some basic things we can do. We can talk about those. But first, let me say the neurological community has been pushing back just tremendously and just saying you know what we're doing is wrong and supplements don't help you. And it's a little bit like saying, uh, you know, uh, arrows, when you just, when you don't aim them, they don't do much. Absolutely. When you don't aim an arrow, it doesn't do much. That's exactly right. But if you know how to use it, where to aim it, in fact, it can be quite effective. And of course, as you indicated, you've got to be very careful. There are supplements that don't have in them what they claim to have in them. 
And this is where I think, you know, over the years, it's going to be so critical for all of us to know which ones, and again, we talk a little bit about this in the book, which ones are actually what they say they are. You want to work with a reputable company uh, and, and have stuff that actually does what it says it does. But again, the, the, the complaint from the neurological community is, okay, um, these companies are over-claiming, and in fact, there's, there's no supplement that cures Alzheimer's. Of course there's not. Yes, duh. But when you know what's driving the process, whether you're looking at arthritis, cardiovascular disease, gut health, brain health, absolutely, you've got a huge, and, and I would say if there's one take-home from all of this, it's this. We have been told that there is no armamentarium for Alzheimer's. There's nothing you can do. Take a drug, you're going to die. It's not going to help you much. The, the, what's true, what's come out of the research is just the opposite. The armamentarium for cognitive decline is massive. It includes all the diet, exercise, sleep, stress, brain training that we've talked about. It includes supplements. It includes stem cells. You have to know what you're treating. You have to know how to treat it. That's the critical piece. We can follow your neurochemistry now and say, here are the things that are critical for you to get better. And so, of course, supplements can be helpful. And so there's a, there are numerous things. So simple example, of course, we want to make sure that your vitamin D is up to high enough levels. So many of us are low in vitamin D. And unfortunately, my own father-in-law, uh, who was a wonderful professor, uh, ended up with having Lewy body years ago. Um, and when they evaluated him, his, his vitamin D level was shockingly low. And unfortunately, he was hurting himself over the years. And of course, now we recognize Lewy body is largely a toxicity disease. And he had been, as a plant physiology professor, exposed to so many of these herbicides and pesticides. So he had a high toxic burden. So vitamin D, good one. I like whole coffee fruit extract. Uh, because it's turned out to increase your brain-derived neurotrophic factor quite substantially. And of course, exercise helps it as well. Uh, so both of these things together tend to be very good. So you want to increase that level. Um, there's a, an interesting new thing out with pro uh, propolis that you may have seen. Propolis is an interesting molecule. It is, uh, propolis is made, or a combination of molecules actually. Propolis comes from bees actually uh, eating bark and producing this stuff that has an antimicrobial effect and an anti-inflammatory effect. So because of those effects, um, a study was undertaken in South America, looking at people who were living at high altitude and, and had relatively high rates of dementia. And it turns out when these people were given propolis for a few years, in fact, they actually reduced the likelihood of converting to dementia. You know, interestingly, propolis is kind of the bee's equivalent of amyloid. They use it to sterilize their hive. They use it because it has this antimicrobial effect, just as our brains use amyloid because it has an antimicrobial effect. So that's a nice one. Um, and then uh, magnesium threonate. Um, many of us are low in our magnesium. If you look in general, most of us are low in magnesium, in zinc, about a billion people worldwide low in zinc. Uh, in potassium, in iodine, and in choline. And I would say one of my favorites is citocholine. You can also take GPC choline, either way. If you go on chronometer and just follow your daily intake, 
the vast majority of us are not getting enough choline. We should be getting about 550 milligrams of choline per day. Most of us are coming in around 300, 350, 400. So we tend to be low. And this is so crucial because the most important neurotransmitter for memory formation is acetylcholine. You need sufficient choline to make the acetylcholine. And so, so many of us are not able to make the acetylcholine. So again, we're just putting an additional drag on our brain function. So uh, taking some citicoline, and this was beautiful work over decades by Professor Richard Wortman from MIT showing that that citicoline together uh, with omega-3s um, turned out to be very helpful for synapse density and synapse formation. So of course that leads to omega-3s. Omega-3s incredibly important uh, for so many reasons. And you may have seen recently that uh, just a study just came out this week, again, showing that uh, relatively high levels uh, of omega-3s needed to budge the omega-3 in your cerebrospinal fluid, what's, what's likely to be in your brain. Um, so you probably do need a significant amount, especially DHA. Uh, so make sure that you get sufficient DHA. And that may be one gram, two grams. Some people I know uh, use even up to four grams. So make sure that you're getting this. Again, a good reason to have some of the non-high mercury fish, uh, like wild-caught salmon and things like that, very helpful, like sardines uh, and anchovies and herring and things like that could be so helpful for their, their omega-3 content. And then uh, for many of us, we are low in iodine, uh, very commonly, and in zinc. And of course, COVID-19 has really brought out the issues with people being low in zinc. Zinc supports your immune function. Um, I like to take for my, for my own immune function because of COVID-19, and I'm in a bad, bad risk group. I, I'm a man. That's already a bad risk group. I'm old. That's already a bad risk group. Um, I've got the wrong blood type. So I'm in a really bad risk group for COVID-19, and so I'm taking some AHCC, which is actually supports your, uh, your T-cell function, your helper cell function. And actually originally suggested by a wonderful woman who had worked with her daughter who'd gotten a viral infection of her brain and does very well with support for her uh, cellular system. Because as you know, when you fight viruses, the humoral immune system, the antibodies, very important. The cellular immune system turns out typically to be even more important, but you want to get both of those up to snuff. So those are some of the things that, that I like to take. There are dozens more. and Some people like you know, phosphatidylserine, uh, another good one. Curcumin is a wonderful one because of both its anti-inflammatory effects and its amyloid binding effects. It's helpful to help remove the amyloid over time. Now, you don't want to remove your amyloid until you remove the things that are causing the amyloid. That's right. the big issue. Right. Um, and interestingly, as you know, there have been studies trying to give people amyloid antibodies. This is the same thing that happens when you reopen the country with COVID-19. You're not getting rid of what causes the problem, but now you're getting rid of the, of the protection. And what happens? You have an upsurge. You have a problem. And we've seen a number of people now. They go on the antibodies without removing the upstream problems. They actually get worse instead of better. So my hope is in the long run, we're going to remove the, the source of the problem. Then giving those antibodies makes a lot of sense. Well, Doc, you know, as someone who has been obsessed 
with Brain Health. You have been someone that I have had the pleasure to learn from and now interview you twice on the show. You have given such extraordinary value both times. And I just want to wish you congratulations. Your book is coming out. We are releasing this uh, the week that your book comes out. So the week of August the 17th, I believe. Um, So congratulations on the book. It is fabulous. I encourage everybody. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, I'm assuming we can buy it wherever there's, you know, book retailers. Um, If people want to get in contact with you or your work, is there a way that they can do that? Or is it through the book only? Yeah, through easy. DrBredison.com or you can look at uh, mycognoscopy.com. Any of those um, will get you to, to, uh, to me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Doc, and uh, best of luck with the book. Thank you, Dr. Stephanie. Thanks for all the great work you're doing. Thank you. You know, anytime I get to talk about brain health and some of the parameters around promoting healthy brain aging, I get so excited. And of course, this interview was no different. I thought you got, I hope you got a lot out of it. I certainly did. And when we were off camera, when we ended the recording, Dr. Bredesen said to me, well, you really know your stuff. (laughs) So that is a huge, huge compliment uh, for me. And I wanted to share that with you because he is certainly, I've been you know, learning from him for years. And it was such an honor to uh, interview him twice for this podcast. So with that positive note in mind, if you feel so inclined, I would love to ask you for a rating or a review of the podcast. We are really starting to see the ratings and the reviews take off. And of course, it's so exciting to know that because we know that with more people who are exposed to the podcast, the more uh, people that we can help. So uh, I always like to leave these little Easter eggs in the uh, outro in the, in the end of the podcast, uh, because if you are listening, still listening to the pod at this point, you are one of my special Bettys. So I want to thank you for that and uh, hope that you enjoy that little feedback that uh, Dr. B gave me. I have certainly tucked it away in my uh, happy moments folder in my brain. And uh, with that said, I wish you well, and I will see you next I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Asima, and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.